looks like those who sat to my left did not make it in as well as those who sat to my right. So I don't know what that means, but it's good to see you here uh, this morning. Uh, I got up early and began to shovel and then realized how much snow we were getting and went down to my study, put some notes together, and then Pastor Charles called me and said, my GPS says I'm going to arrive about uh, 10 till the hour. And I said, okay. And so then I went about my doing my thing, and then he called a little while ago and said, okay, now the GPS says I'm going to be a minute late. And I said, okay, and I'll wait for you. And then he called a while ago and said, 23, there were jackknife trucks and uh, cars in the ditch, and but he, he was still on his way. He was going to be here, uh, which I hope he does because I did not bring the notes from my study with me because I thought he'd be here. So, Dan, you might be ready uh, for this morning. Dan will have the afternoon service, but hopefully I hear the Bachmeyers are reported to come in late, so uh, maybe we'll be added to here as we go along. But I'm glad you're here, glad you made it safely, and we pray God will give us a good day. We will be having lunch, I think, together, uh, if there's food down there, uh, and then we'll be having an afternoon service about 1.45. And then the regular announcements are there in their bulletins. The only new thing is that, God willing, we plan on starting Sunday school uh, September 6th, so uh, we'll work through that, but it'll be a couple weeks. So we start September 6th at 9.45, so keep that in mind as well. February. February, what do I say? Hey, I'm, I'm, time's flying. <laughs> what can I say? Uh, February uh, 6th, uh, we'll plan on starting uh, Sunday school. So keep, keep that in mind. Uh, I do want to thank those who uh, shoveled and got things prepared here. We don't take that for granted why they did it, so that maybe it was a little safer for you to get in this morning once you arrived here. All right, well now let us give ourselves to the worship of our God. I see Pastor Charles is coming in now, so uh, I can rest a little easier now. But let's give ourselves to the worship of our God, recognizing according to Hebrews chapter 12 that the one uh, that has provided a way by which we can now come and worship God is that one who endured the cross, despising the shame. And he's now set at the right hand of the throne of God. And so let us fix our eyes upon Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith. Would you just take a moment and ask God to help you to set your eyes upon him this morning.
Now then, inside your bulletin is the call to worship. It comes from Isaiah chapter 53. And of course, it's Isaiah setting before us the work of Christ and the reality of man's true condition as being sinners, but he bore our sins there on the cross. So will you please stand with me as we call one another to worship with this responsive reading. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hid their face. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. He was pierced through our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. Now let us take our Trinity hymn books and raise our voices in praise to the God who provided such a wonderful sacrifice by singing together hymn number four, All Praise to God Who Reigns Above, the God of All Creation, number four in the Trinity hymn book.
God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, we give you praise, we give you thanks, and we bless you out of Zion, as it were. This morning, we thank you for the opportunity to be in your temple, not this building, but among the living stones that you have called by your grace. We give you thanks for the opportunity to praise your name. It is a pleasant thing to dwell in unity with brethren. It is a pleasant thing to uh, sing your praise because at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. We give you thanks for your word and pray that you will bless it uh, to us today. Strengthen your servant uh, to bring that word. Strengthen us to uh, receive it. All things uh, are in vain if you do not send the spirit of uh, understanding in your word uh, to each of us. And so we pray for that blessing. We pray for forgiveness for our sins as we have confessed in the song like sheep uh, we have gone astray and we have uh, sinned against you and we pray that you will forgive us through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ through the cross that that greatest of uh, great works that you have done and is your uh, memorial forever be with those who are suffering we pray physical afflictions spiritual afflictions. We pray that you, our God, would raise them up. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Now take the Hymns of Grace hymn book and turn with me to 339. 339. Rise up, O men of God, have none have done with lesser things, give heart and mind and soul and strength to serve the King of Kings. 339 in the Hymns of Grace.
consecutive reading through the New Testament. Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. Here we have the conclusion of our Lord's Sermon there on the Mount. There are many wonderful truths found in this chapter. I will refrain from opening them up in great detail. Suffice it to say that I think one of the lessons that our Lord is seeking to set before us is the idea of being sincere, being genuine. Don't be hypocritical. Don't be like the Pharisees who, whose religion was simply outward but, but not inward. Of course, many things are quoted from chapter 7, Matthew, in our world today. How many times have you heard, don't judge, judge not, and yet, we often misquote this. We're to, we're to judge, we're to have some discernment because in the very next verse, he says, beware of the dogs. Well, who are the dogs? You, you better know. Don't cast your pearls before swine. You better know who the swine are. And so we, we need to interpret these things correctly in recognizing that there is a discernment and a judgment that we ought to give, but we ought to be willing to be judged with the same judgment that we judge another with. And see, I'm, I'm going to go on and on, but let, let me just encourage you in the end that, that what Christ says is, be careful how you hear the Word of God. For how you hear the Word of God will make a difference as to whether or not you will stand or whether you will fall. So may you always be ready to hear the Word of God correctly and seek to apply that word to our hearts and lives. Follow along. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the same way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or, how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrites, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to dogs. Do not throw your pearls before swine or they will trample them under feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. For what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a snake? Will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. For this is the law and the prophets. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, 
and there are many who enter through it. The gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Beware the false prophet who comes to you in sheep's clothing, in waywardly, but waywardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruit. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and act on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house upon a rock. And the rains fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house. And yet it did not fall, for it had been founded upon the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like the foolish man who built his house upon the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the wind blew and smashed against the house, and it fell, and great was its fall. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority, not as their scribe. Well, may God bless the reading of His Word. As we seek our God together in prayer again, this morning we want to remember the Megarfelt Reformed Baptist Church there in Megarfelt, Northern Ireland. And again, as we mentioned on Wednesday night, this church has been without a pastor for several years. And so certainly one of our requests would be that God would raise up, bring in a man who would be able to shepherd this flock there in Northern Ireland. Let us seek our God together in prayer. Our Father in Heaven, as we have been reminded this morning in the reading of Your Word, how important it is that we not only hear the Word of God, but that, Father, we act upon that Word, that the Word of God would have an effect upon our lives and how we live in this world. Father, we know that left to ourselves, we are prone to wonder. Left to ourselves, we would cast you off. But Father, how we pray that through the work of your Spirit and by your Word, we might press on, that we might endure, 
as we live in a hostile world. Father, help us, we pray, that we might be, by Your grace and through Your work in our lives, found faithful all the days of our lives, that we will be a people who desire to not only know Your will, but to live by Your will. That we might be a people well-pleasing in Your sight and by Your grace, we may hear those words as unworthy as we are. Well done, good and faithful servant. Father, we're thankful for the opportunity of gathering together on this Your day and pray that You will draw near to us. We pray, Father, that You would be with Your people as they meet around the world. And we think of the brethren there in Megarfelt, Northern Ireland. We thank You for them. We thank You for the way that You have kept them together through these years of not having a shepherd there on site. We thank You for men like Pastor Walker who are willing to give them care and oversight during these days. But Father, we would ask that You would bring in a man, raise up a man who would be able to shepherd them, care for them. We would pray that soon we might be able to pray for them and pray for the plurality of elders that You've given to them there in that place. So we ask that as they draw to worship You, that You will draw near to them. Bless, we pray, their ministry and opportunities. We thank You that they're able to meet in person again. And Father, may these be blessed days that You will give to that congregation. Father, we thank You for the fellowship that we enjoy with churches closer to home. We would pray for even the Providence Reformed Baptist Church there in Toledo while their pastor is away. We pray for the one who will stand in that pulpit, that You'll bless Father him and use him in the lives of your people there. Be with Pastor Charles as he opens the Word of God to us this morning. May you draw near to us. Do us good, we pray. Give him clarity. Give him help in the pulpit as he proclaims the Word of God. So, Father, we commit our time together in your Word to you and pray that your Spirit would come and minister unto, that, unto us through that Word. For these things we do pray in Christ's name. Amen. Augustine wrote one time, two things are essential in the world. Now what do you think those two things are? Two things are essential in the world. Life and friendship. Both must be prized highly and not under value. He goes on to write, we are created by God that we might live, but we are not to live solidarily. We must have friendship. And certainly the, the man who will fill the pulpit this morning is a friend. We met, I believe, probably 30 years ago we met, and uh, that friendship has developed over these years. He's become a friend. He's become a counselor and a helper. I'm sure there's times, I don't know if he has caller ID, but if he looks down and sees my name, there, but there are times he must go, oh, not again. But I'm thankful for his friendship and his willingness to come and minister the Word of God to us this morning. So after we sing this hymn, Pastor Charles will come and, and open the Word of God to us. So I would ask that you take your Trinity hymn books 
the Trinity hymn books, turning to hymn number 704, 704, Jesus keep me near the cross, there a precious fountain, 704. Stand with me if you're able as we sing together. I greet you from your sister church in Toledo, Providence Reformed Baptist Church. And my dear friend Calvin kind of stole my thunder. Everything he said to me, I wanted to say that and much more. Except I think, Calvin, did you say we've known each other for 30 years? 
It's been 23. I'm sorry, it seems like 30. And in, and in truth, over those 23 years, your pastor, I want you to know, has been a great friend to me, a great encouragement, a great counselor. And in fact, I'm always the one that worries like he must look, go, not that guy again, when I call him. And you need to know your pastor, in, in ways unspoken, has always been just a gentle encouragement and even rebuke in his faithfulness for me to be faithful to God's people. You have a real treasure in Pastor Walden. I'm sure I'm not telling you anything you don't know. So please continue to pray for him and support him and give him all the encouragement that he needs. Pastor Walden, I do love you greatly, even though it seems like 30 years to you. We'll open up your copy of the scriptures to Psalms 44. Psalm 44, it's one of the psalms written by the sons of Korah. O God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us, the work that you did in their days, in the days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations. Then you planted them. You afflicted the peoples. Then you spread them abroad. For by their own sword you did not, they did not possess the land, and their own arm did not save them. But your right hand and your right arm and the light of your countenance, for you favored them. You are my king, O God. Command victories for Jacob. Through you, we will push back our adversaries. Through your name, we will trample down those who rise up against us. For I will not trust in my bow, nor will my sword save me. But you have saved us from our adversaries, and you've put to shame those who hate us. And God, we've boasted all day long, and we will give thanks to your name forever. Selah. Yet you have rejected us and brought us to dishonor. And you do not go out with our armies. You cause us to turn back from our, the adversary. And those who hate us have taken spoil for themselves. You give us a sheep to be eaten and have scattered us among the nations. You sell your people cheaply and have not profited by their sale. You make us a reproach to our neighbors, a scoffing and a derision to those around us. You make us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long my dishonor is before me, and my humiliation has overwhelmed me because of the voice of him who reproaches and reviles, because of the presence of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us, but we have not forgotten you. And we have not dealt falsely with your covenant. Our hearts has not turned back. And your steps, our steps have not deviated from your way. Yet you've crushed us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. 
If we had forgotten the name of our God or extended our hands to a strange God, would not God find us out? For he knows the secrets of the heart. But for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Arouse yourself. Why do you sleep, O Lord? Awake! Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and our oppression? For our soul has sunk down into the dust. Our body cleaves to the earth. Rise up, be our help, and redeem us for the sake of your loving kindness. Once again, this is God's most holy word. Well, our Reformed faith that we share together, our church, this church, the church we prayed for, our reform teaches us, our reform faith teaches us that there are different competing theologies. Two competing theologies. Our Reformed heritage, along with the Lutherans with us, would say that there's a theology of glory. And then there's the theology of the cross. If you pay close attention, you saw there in our reading from Matthew that our Lord Jesus sets before us two different ways. A narrow way, another way, broad way. There are those who are safe in Christ and those who make great claims in their attachment to Christ. And there's the two houses. There's these two ways. There's these two theologies. One of glory one of the cross. The first, the theology of glory, assumes that man is able to achieve much by his strength. While the other, the theology of the cross, knows that God works, in fact, not in strength, but in weakness. A contemporary Lutheran theologian, Jean Edward Veith, speaking of the theology of cross, he says, the theology of glory, rather. The theology of glory expects total success, finding all the answers, winning all the battles, and living happily ever after. The theology of glory is all about my strength, my power, and my works. A theology of glory expects his church to be perfect. A theologian of glory, if he gets sick expects God always to heal him and that completely. The truth is the only way we can know God safely and savingly, the place where God, the blessed Holy Spirit, brings all the elect of God is to the dismay, the sorrow, the blood, the gore, the nails, the sorrow, the spit, the beatings, and even the dying of God's own Son, Jesus Christ. Theology of glory, the theologian of glory. And we all are, according to Luther, we are all theologians. The question is, are you a good theologian or a bad theologian? A theologian of glory does not receive God's commendation, but rather his condemnation. They refuse to see that God, in fact, has come down to us and does not call us up to him. 
Another theologian, Lutheran, this uh, Calvinist, Reformed theologian, contemporary of our, to our time, Carl Truman, speaking of the theologians of the cross, he said, they are those who build their theology in the light of God's own revelation of himself in Christ hanging on the cross. Christ, God in Christ, triumphs over sin and evil by allowing the sin and the evil to triumph over him. His real strength, God's real strength, is demonstrated through the apparent weakness. Christian theology, to be Christian, must be a theology not of glory, but of the cross. The Reformation spoke of this theology of the cross, the Theologia Crucis, as not only the way of God in our justification, where God declares us to be righteous. He does not constitute us righteous and then declare us righteous. That's the error of the medieval church with that evil, sinister, would-be Christ the Pope has had. And this is why our confession says that now the medieval church, the Roman church, is a synagogue of Satan because they did not keep this clear distinction between the theology of glory and the theology of cross, that our, sanctifi- our justification comes to us through the cross of Christ. But what is true in our justification is true in our sanctification. The cross of Christ is not only the means by which God forgives us and justifies us, but it is that same cross by which God now sanctifies us. The cross for the Christian, as we sang, is not something that we visit occasionally or even only at the beginning of the Christian life and then when our conscience troubles us. No, it is the way that God still reveals himself in our sanctifying salvation. So now this morning, with God's help, with the use of this psalm, I'd like us to see once again what we share together as Christians, as children of the Reformation. And to remove again from our hearts, because it is our natural tendency to be theologians of glory. That we would see again the, the glory of God in the cross of Christ. Now what we're going to do, we're going to walk through this. I have three different headings. We're going to see a glorious past, verses 1 through 8. Then we're going to see a gloomy present, verses 9 through 16. 9, 9 through 22, rather. And then future hope in God, verses 23 to the end. And then in understanding what God has for us in this text, we're going to visit two other texts. Both of them, hopefully, I trust, would be very familiar to you, so that you'll see that what God is showing to us here in Psalm 44 is utilized throughout Scripture that we might always understand that we would always understand God in the cross of Christ. But before we look at what's here in Psalm 44, again, let us pause and ask God for his help. Our gracious God in heaven, we thank you.
for our Bibles. Our English translation that has faithfully preserved your words for us. We thank you for others who have studied and learned. But it's not on these, finally, that we place our confidence, but rather you. And so we would ask, blessed Holy Spirit, having inspired Scripture, having preserved them, giving them to us in our own language, we would ask now that you'd help us to rightly understand what is here so that you, our great God in heaven, by the work of the Spirit through the Son, you would receive all the praise and all the glory. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said, the first one through eight verses here are about a glorious past. Now, this is divided into two sections. Verses one through three is about a distant past. So you see there, verse one, we have heard, our fathers have told us. There's a memory of divine help and blessings. Memories that were handed down to them from the fathers. Now, you could read all the various commentators. We don't know the historical situation of this psalm. More than likely, it was sometime not too long after they came into the land. What he's reflecting on here is those who know your Bible know that God brought them into the land that he promised them. And through Joshua, he drove out the inhabitants of the land. So you see there, verse 2, is what he's, he, the, the psalmist is recounting. And together as a nation, they're actually singing this as a matter of hymnody. This glorious past, the distant past, how you in your own hand drove out the nations. And then you planted them. That is God's people. You afflicted the people so that he drove down, spread them abroad. This is all remembering the past and is recalling that God in his magic, majestic sovereignty provided as he promised for his people. In verse 3, we, we encounter the three different devices of God. Your own sword. They did not, for by their own sword they did not possess the land. And their own arm did not save them. But your hand, one... Your arm, too, and the light of your presence. It was by these that God had delivered his people into the land and had given them triumph. Now, what is the reason for all this? Well, it's right there at the end of verse 3. We're simply told, for you favored them. What you have here in the Hebrew is just a, a picture. You could put, call this picture favored. God favored them. We would say it this way. He gave them grace. That's the only reason. It wasn't because they were strong or mighty. God showed them grace. Now, moving into verse 4 to verse 8, we see the more recent past where they, verse 4, call upon God as king. Because they know from experience there's none other to be trusted. 
Verse 6, For I will not trust in my bow, nor will my sword save me. But you have saved us from our adversaries, and you've put shame on those who hate us. So they're, they're, they're saying, not only did you do something for the fathers, but we in our own experience here in the land, we have had triumph. And though God certainly used their sword, they're saying it wasn't our sword, but it was you, God, our great king, who led us into batter, battle and victory. Looking back, and looking around at what they've recently experienced, we can see, verse 8, their enthusiastic attachment to God. In God we have boasted, not part of the day, not at the end or simply midday, but we've boasted in God all day long. And we will give thanks to your name. If you have a New American Standard, I think this is true of all the English translation. What's the last word there in verse 8? We will give thanks to your name forever. That the the word the the word up underneath the you know your our Old Testament was written in Hebrew and the word that's translated wonderfully and rightly by the New American Standard, in God we have boasted, it's from that word we get the word hallelujah. In you we will praise because you've given us victory. Now, the Selah, we, we don't know how to understand this. Some would say it was some sort of an indication for the musicians to perhaps pause. We, we just, we really don't know. And when I'm at home and I'm working through the Psalms, that's how we use this. We use this as a pause. Where we just stop and reflect and think about what we just read. So here's what I want to ask you. If you had just sat down this morning with a cup of coffee, maybe with your, your spouse, your children, if you had just read ver- verses 1 through 8, what title would you give this psalm? The Overcomer's Song. The Song of Victory. Psalm 44. A, more, a mighty warrior is our God. You know what that means up there? A mighty fortress is our God. Maybe you'd call this a mighty warrior is our God. Or you might call it the triumph of the believer. Or good days from our good God. Right? Well, beginning at verse 9 to verse 22, in fact, we see a gloomy presence. It talks about a glorious past, a past that the fathers had handed down. By the way, parents, that's why it's important for you to always be recounting the past that's in our scriptures, catechizing your children in the present, letting them know what you have experienced. Our, our faith is one that's been handed down from generation to generation. They move from the, the glorious past to a gloomy present. 
versus, like the previous part, this has two subparts. So verses 9 through 16, there's no other way to, to, to dominate this other than in this gloomy present, our shepherd has sold us. And he rejected us, verse 9. The focus even in this part remains intensely upon God. So if you just look at your Bibles, I think this is true of all the the major English translations, and you let your eyes just begin at verse 9, six times you see them refer to God. You have rejected us. You caused us to turn back, verse 10. Verse 11, you gave us as sheep to be eaten. Verse 12, you sell your people cheaply. Verse 13, you make us a reproach to our neighbors, a scoffing and a derision to those around us. Verse 14, you make us a byword among the nations. A a byword, we we still have this, but in the Bible you'll see like Paul in the New Testament, he says Cretans are always liars and gluttons. So Paul still want a Cretan. It was a byword. They're taking something about the Cretans and saying, now we're going to make fun of everybody else by calling them a Cretan. Remember, some of us are young enough, we would be called by our teachers perhaps at school a dunce, which goes back to medieval theologians, dunce scotus. It's a byword. He's saying, verse 14, you've made us a byword, a laughingstock among the people when they would hear about Israel at this time. Because the shepherd had sold them and sold them cheaply, you bring up the Jews, they're snicker. Or someone's doing poorly and and suffering terribly, they'll use them as a byword. You're like a Jew. Verse 15 and 16, it's really interesting. You have the nation speaking, but... It's not just a national thing because now it gets very personal. Verse 15. All day long my dishonor is before me and my humiliation has overwhelmed me because of the voice of him reproaches and reviles because of the presence of the enemy and the avenger. Previously he looks at the nation and he moves out, moves out. Verse 14, to the nations, among the people, further out. But now he brings it, but it's right here. It's very personal. It's in my own personal experience. Me, along with the people of God, and myself. Now, the, the question would be, why has this present gloom come upon God's people? James Boyce, in his comments on this psalm, offers three possible reasons. First, he says, possibly, God was temporarily looking the other way, and the people's enemies used that moment. Or, secondly, perhaps the defeat is not as bad as it appears, and the people are simply exaggerating. I exaggerate. This is killing me when it's really not killing me. And so maybe they're exaggerating. 
Or thirdly, perhaps the people are at fault. And God has sent defeat as a judgment for their sins. Now, what do we make of these three suggestions? Well, the first one, that God perhaps just got, was caught off guard and he wasn't paying attention and the enemies took advantage of him, that's pagan. You understand God is not man. He's not distracted. Nothing passes by him unnoticed. That's a notion of the pagans. The second is wrong, that they were exaggerating. Verse 11, you give us a sheep to be eaten. We're, we're like food. That's hardly an exaggeration. 19, you have crushed us in the place of jackals and have covered us with the shadow of death. You remember the psalm that talks about walking through the shadow of death. And there's this darkness that's come over the people, so they're not exaggerating. But what about the last one that he suggests? He says, perhaps the people are at fault, and God has sent a defeat as judgment for their sins. That's how we usually think. Bad things happen because we're bad people. Wasn't that the logic of Job? And his friends, the wicked suffer in this life. Job suffers. You just went through Job, right? So the wicked suffer, Job suffers, therefore what? Job is wicked. Well, you read through Job, study through Job. You know that's not true. And as a matter of fact, it's not because of their guilt. That's the second part of this gloomy presence. Verse 17. We have remained faithful. All this has come upon us, but we've not forgotten you. Now, put negatively, put positively, they're saying we remembered you. And we've not dealt falsely with your covenant. Now, again, this language here means that they've been faithful to the word of God and to his ordinances. They're clustered around the the temple or the tabernacle. And they're saying we've kept word of the sacrament faithfully. This has not come upon us because we've been guilty of something. There's... Four different things in verses 17 and 18. We've remembered God. We've been true covenant keepers. Verse 18, we've had steadfast hearts. Our heart is not turned back, and our steps have not deviated from your way. Fourthly, we've not gone in the path of unrighteousness. We've walked rather the narrow path of righteousness. They know... And they confess, verse 20 and verse 21, the sovereignty of God. If we had forgotten the name of our God or extended our hands to a strange God. Now, we don't know for sure. This could be referring to prayer because it was often a posture prayer to extend their hands. Or it could be, as they were commanded to do, that whenever they needed to appeal to the greatest authority, they were to swear to God. So either prayer... Or in the court of justice, they're saying, we've not found another God. We've not recognized anyone greater than you. 
Because, verse 21, look at your Bibles, if we had done these things, would not God find this out? Rhetorical question, what's the answer? Yes. Anytime you put your reliance on another other than God in your heart, He knows it. Why? Look at the end of verse 21. For He knows the secrets of the heart. God in His sovereign majesty knows all things. Every child that's catechizing the Reformed faith knows that God knows all things. They know that God knows this. And yet, in all this, there's no confession of sin. There's no repentance of unfaithfulness. I agree with those that would say, when rightly understood, this psalm really becomes what we would call a dirge, a lament. There was a glorious past with the fathers. More recently, we ourselves have seen God work on our behalf. And now, we suffer tremendously. Not because God was distracted. Not, not because it's not as bad as it appears they're exaggerating as a nation. And it's not because they've done anything wrong. Now, just to finish off the exposition of the, of the psalm, beginning at verse 23, there's this hope in God in the future. And so they, the technical word is an anthropomorphism. They treat God like he's asleep. A man who sleeps. Awake. Do not reject. Verse 23. Why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and our oppression? Verse 25. Just to really understand how terrible this is, for our soul has sunk down into the dust and our body cleaves to the earth. They're saying we're as good as dead. In our very real experience, we're down in the dust. We're down and we cleave to the earth. But here's their hope, verse 26. Calling upon God. This word here, this phrase is used later of the resurrection of the dead. Rise up! Be our help and redeem us for the sake of your loving kindness. Our English translations have, because the, the, the Hebrew word has said, it's, it's, so, it's so multifaceted. There's this one great big word that the numeric standard uses to try to get its arms wrapped around God's mercy, God's loyalty, God's kindness. God's love. They make their final appeal on the basis of God's of God's love. So, there's the psalm. There's more that could be said. Cal said I had 90 minutes to say it, but I didn't. I didn't think he was telling the truth. Sometimes I do hear what I want to hear. 
What are the lessons? Well, are there lessons here for us? Well, your New Testament Bible says whatever was written, Romans 15 says whatever was written earlier time, Psalm 44, was written for our instructions so that through perseverance and the encouragement of Scripture, we might have hope. You might be thinking, David, what's encouraging there? To whatever extent that you approach this psalm and you see this and you go, like, can we just, like, not do that psalm? To that same extent, you're allowing the theology of glory to inform your thinking. Why do the righteous suffer? Look, look at verse 24. Why do you hide your face and forget our transgressions? Verse 23, arouse yourself. Why do you sleep? This is the cry of the righteous throughout all of Scripture. When you're in Job, you heard Job say to God, why do you hide your face and consider me your enemy? Remember, Job starts with God saying, have you considered my servant Job? And what was God's declaration about Job? He was righteous. And yet Job cries out, why? You hide your face. Lamentations, the whole book of Lamentations in your Bibles. Jeremiah, with the people of God, why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so long? Which is all to ask, here's the question, here's what's going on. Why do the righteous suffer? Well, the closest the psalm here at this point gives us is in verse 22. Look at it. But for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Earlier, we're like sheep that's been sold cheaply for food. Perhaps sacrifice. And you didn't even profit from it. My wife won't let me attend whenever she has a yard sale or garage sale. She won't let me watch the stuff anymore because as soon as something comes, I go, take it. Go, take it. She has like $3. I go, like, I'd give you two just to take it. And this is kind of here where they're saying... You have allowed this. You've brought this upon us. And it's been no benefit to you. So the question is, why? Why do the righteous suffer? Well, verse 22, they recognize that God somehow in this, in our suffering, is for you. And not only for you, but because of you. Sheep led to be slaughtered. Sound familiar? Well, remember I said I wanted to look at this passage, then two other familiar passages. Go to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, verse 3, speaking of the coming Savior, speaking of Jesus Christ, God's own holy, perfect, sinless Son, 
born of the Virgin Mary. It says, verse 3, He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Listen, you know what that means? Jesus knew what it was to be depressed. You ever have those days, even if it's bright and sunny, it's dark and hard on the inside. Hello, darkness, my old friend. Jesus knew something of that. Verse 3, And like one from whom men hide their face. In other words, you would see him go like, I'm not making eye contact. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go on the other side. I don't want to see it. It's disturbing. It's unsettling. Verse 3, He was despised and we did not esteem Him. Who was the Him? Jesus was not esteemed. Verse 4, surely our griefs himself he bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we esteemed him stricken, smit of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chasing of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. Yet like a lamb that's led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. There's the theology of the cross. The one who was the God-forsaken man. The one that if you would have looked and if you observed, you've been there throughout his life, you would have said, this man is damned of God. In the cross, it is in that very cross that God is now known and was revealed as both wise and gracious. It is the strange and wonderful paradox of our faith, the Christian faith, that death brings life. That weakness is found to be strength and greatness is achieved in service. Remember Jesus when he came and he begins to preach the nature of his kingdom, the first words that he says are blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed poor paradox. Because theirs is the kingdom of God. The cross then, now, is the display of the wisdom and the power of God. For the sake of time, let me just read to you what Paul, as he's going to strengthen the church at Corinth and correct its issues... He says, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, the cross is the power of God. Indeed, Jews, they ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ. What's the next word? We preach Christ crucified. 
Now, to the Jews, this is a stumbling block, and to the Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are the called, Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. You want to know about the love of God, you look to the cross of Christ. You want to know about the wisdom, the strength, the mercy, the loving kindness Now, look, you don't look through the cross. You don't look around the cross to try to figure out some sort of other logic. Rather, as Christians, we look at the sorrow, the suffering, the abandonment. Christ himself asked the question, My God, why do you forsaken me? And in all the sorrow and all the shame, Every Christian, every, every true child of God here, you know this to be true. That in that great day, that dark day, we have light and life. And we know God's love. Yes, but you might ask, David, what about the Christian life? Living in the victorious life. I've been to the Christian bookstore and there's They're always telling me how I can be a better me and God's plan for victory and the higher life movement. Living the victorious life where we are told that we will will always be the head and not the tail. This talk of weakness and difficulties and sorrows and sufferings cannot be Christ's will. Remember, Paul had a, a thorn in his flesh. We're not told what it is. I'm glad we're not told. That way we can always apply it to our sufferings. Remember what he said? That Christ came to him as he prayed not once, not twice, but three times. Christ said to him, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. See, the theologian of glory says power is perfected powerfully. And weakness is a sign of failure. So Paul could say most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may be dwelling in me. Therefore, I'm well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses. Sound familiar? With persecutions, with difficulties. For Christ's sake. For your sake, we are like sheep to the slaughter. Paul can say, for when I am weak, you know it? Then I am strong. It was Job's counselors who could not see God's wisdom and power in the suffering of the righteous. So that Eliphaz, his first friend, says, whoever was Whoever perished being innocent? Or where were the upright destroyed? According to what I have seen, such a theologian of glory he was, those who plow iniquity and those who sow trouble harvest it. That's the theology of glory. It refuses to recognize and to see God and to understand God where the rest of the world refuses to see him. The naked, beaten, bruised, dead body 
of the eternal Son of God. As a Christian, you know what I'm saying is true. Now here's the truth. Jesus said to us, you must take up your cross and follow him. Christ's cross is our cross. The dismay, the sorrow, the gore, the abandonment. wasn't just for Christ. wasn't just for Paul. It's for all of us. Now let me, let me prove this to you. This is the last text and we'll be done. Romans chapter 8. Oh, dear people, if, if, if God helps me to just deliver this one thing to you, it is a theology of glory that refuses to see that God is found in the suffering and the brokenness of his beloved son and likewise in the suffering of his own people. And even more than that, as you're going to see, God's love is not questioned by suffering. The theology of the cross promises that when God seems most absent, he is with us in his sanctifying, saving, gracious love. So you see here in this chapter, speaks so much about our privileges as a people of God. Verse 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Then verse 35. laid out in between. God chose us, justified us. God will yet glorify us because He's predestined us to be like His Son in every respect. But now, verse 35, who who will separate us from the love of Christ? Remember how the psalm ended? An appeal to God's loving kindness and His love. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Now he gives us this list. It's a list that comes directly to us from Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 and Psalm 44 and other places. Will tribulation, this is a rhetorical question, the answer at the end of each one of these is no. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation? No. Or distress? No. Or persecution? Or famine? Or nakedness? Or peril? Or sword? None of those will separate you. Though they at this time, and for 2,000 years, God's people have suffered those very things. How could he be so confident to say that? Well, look at the very next verse. Just as it is written. You know where this is written? Psalm 44. For your sake, we're being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. For I'm convinced, Paul says, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heart, height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God 
which is in Christ Jesus. He begins asking about the love of Christ. He ends talking about the love of God because we're one and the same. And so, child of God, listen. Your suffering is not evidence of any sort of God is against you, that God has abandoned you. Rather, it is for His sake that you suffer. And when Christ returns and you will be raised up like He was raised up, doesn't the Bible say that when He comes we will see Him and we will be like Him? We're not like Him yet. The resurrection still awaits us. But we can look back to the resurrection and know that that resurrection is pointing to the cross and saying at the cross, though there's an abandonment that we hear from Christ's own mouth, we're also assured that in the cross God was at work doing the greatest work the history of the world had ever known, ever will know, and the greatest display of God's love and His commitment to His people was on full display. Now listen, some of us, you're suffering because you've been a knucklehead using a byword. Maybe. But even when we suffer because we've done things wrong, our God is still at work sanctifying to us our sorrows, our difficulties, and our hardships. How do we know that's true? How do we know that suffering, sorrow, difficulty, all the shame, how do we know that God is at work? Because Christ died, but Christ was resurrected. Therefore, we can rest all of our confidence, all of our hope, knowing that God in Christ loves us now, day without end. That is the gospel. Amen. Let us pray. O gracious Father in heaven, had it not been recorded in Holy Scripture, we would never believe these things. Had it not been that you, the blessed author of these Scriptures, we would have never trusted these things. We can see on our horizon As your people here in America, as is true around the globe, suffering awaits us. Whether we will sleep in the dust or we will meet them in the air, we trust all these things to you. We ask that you'd help us to turn a deaf ear to the world that despises us, our own heart that would even condemn us, and always and ever trust in Christ our glorious and most gracious, loving Savior. Our Father in heaven, we pray these prayers with great earnestness and confidence, not in our earnestness, but in our confidence in your Son, Jesus Christ, that we will be heard. And so we thank you for Jesus. Amen. closing, let me invite you to turn in the hymns of grace to 272, 272, a hymn in which we are reminded of the suffering of Christ, the power of the cross, 272. Stand with me as we sing together.
on to suffer with him. And may God help us to do so in a way that's pleasing to him in his sight. Thank you, brother, for your labors on our behalf. We appreciate that. There is lunch that will follow this, and then there'll be an afternoon service at 145. You are dismissed. Brother David, if you go back to the door to the people, we would appreciate it.